Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk Did You Read? With Tim Montgomery. Thanks for downloading this first ever edition of The Times' new Did You Read? My name is Tim Montgomery, editor of The Times' opinion pages, and each week I'll be gathering some of the newspaper's great columnists together to discuss the articles that they've been writing and I hope that you've been reading. This week I'm joined by columnists Rachel Sylvester, Philip Collins and Daniel Finkelstein. All of the articles we'll be discussing can be read on our revived Comment Central blog, which you can find at thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral, and that's available to all Times subscribers. We'll be discussing four questions today. First of all, has Labour accepted Tory spending plans, as Danny Finkelstein has suggested? If Labour has accepted those plans, what is Labour's new offering? At some point, if we're really going to get on top of public spending, will we have to tackle the amount we spend on pensions? And finally, how is the coalition doing on spending control at the moment as it undergoes the latest spending control round? Danny, I'm going to begin with you because it was in a piece that you wrote a week or so ago and you said a lot of people perhaps had missed the significance of what Ed Balls and Ed Miliband had said on accepting the Chancellor's spending plans in the first year of the next parliament. Yes, you can forgive them for it, though, because the more I read Ed Ball's speeches uh, again, so that the reader doesn't have to, uh, the more I found that they were deliberately obscure. But I did think there was something very significant. I think if Ed Ball's is giving up on the argument that he used uh, before he uh, before he was shadow chancellor, when he ran for the leadership, that deficits really don't matter, that he was saying that he was going to use George Osborne's spending plans as a starting point. In other words, if he was stopping making the argument that these plans were fundamentally flawed and wrong, uh, he has ceded a huge part of the intellectual case. uh, And he has then ended up in a position where Labour has to make very big decisions about the size, the scope of the state 
if it's going to be able to deliver plans that until now it has sort of dismissed and implied that it wouldn't be able to do and now is implying that it will. Because spending has really been Labour's central pitch for most of the time, certainly that Brown was Chancellor and leader. And in your piece, you actually compared what Balls and Miliband did to the intellectual surrender of Healy and Callaghan in the 1970s uh, in, in terms of the scale of its political... Absolutely. Well, there's this famous moment when Dennis Healy turns around at the airport realising he can't fly 17 hours to Hong Kong because while he's there, the economy in Stirling could deteriorate too much. And he comes back to the Treasury and decides that he's going to uh, apply for a loan to the IMF. On the same day, not realising Dennis Healy has made that decision, Jim Callaghan makes this key speech where he says, you know, if we could ever spend our way, if we ever thought we could spend our way out of recession, we now know we can't. And this was the beginning of mantraism, not the election of Margaret Thatcher, that seeding of the intellectual argument and lots flowed from it. I think this is in a a more low-key way because they're not in power, because it's more muddled in thinking, a similar kind of intellectual collapse. Rachel, do you buy what Dan is saying? Do you think it is, Dan is admitting it isn't entirely clear, but is that where Labour's going? Are they essentially going to go into the next election on Tory spending plans? I think they've decided that's where the voters are. I'm not sure whether intellectually they've really bought into the argument. I'm not sure it's a complete surrender, as Danny describes it. It's more a sort of positioning thing. I think they've rightly judged that the voters aren't going to believe you can spend your way out of recession anymore um, and that the Tories have won that argument on the deficit. So therefore, they have to start where the voters are and then talk about spending money differently. Are the voters there, though? Because some opinion polls also say that most voters think the coalition's cutting too far, too fast, too unfairly, to use the terminology. And there's quite a lot of support for actually capital spending, which is something I wrote about in my column a couple of days ago about Boris Johnson, who seems quite happy to argue for big infrastructural investment. Is is there room actually for Labour to be bolder than perhaps they think? Well, I think the problem is they've looked like they're in denial about the reality. They've looked like they, they don't want to admit to any mistakes in power. And the one um, sort of Blairite person said to me, it's as if we were driving the car when it smashed into the um, you know, wall, and now we're saying, "Give us back the keys, and we'll drive on." You know, over the edge of the cliff this time. And it, there's not been a sufficient until last week, which is why I think it was significant. There hasn't been a sufficient recognition of the change in circumstances. And Phil, your view, if I've got it right, is you think Ed Miliband and Ed Balls are moving in the right direction on fiscal uh, responsibility, but too slowly. Yes, too slowly and too late. Uh, I think Danny is, as usual, far too optimistic. If only this were an intellectual (laughs) surrender. But unfortunately, it's nothing of the case. If Danny can bear it, I think he should go back and read the speech again. Because then I think you'd discover a truth about Ed Miliband lead balls, which is if there's ever two sides to an argument, they will hold them both simultaneously. And this is what they're doing now. On the one hand, they recognize, as Rachel says, that the, the voters still blame them in large part for the mess the country's in economically, which is remarkable given we've had quite a long time now of a coalition government whose economic policy is not it's working. The same in America. That is partly how Obama got re-elected as well. He had a pretty sluggish economy, but people still blamed Bush for that. And it's very possible, I think it's what the Tories are hoping, is that, they'll, that the voters will still blame Labour when it comes to the next British general election. Yeah, yes, they do. But Labour don't blame Labour. And that's mm-hmm. been the change, that they've realised that they're not going to win that argument. So to that extent... They have shifted the position, and I welcome it to the extent they have. Where I don't think they've 
surrendered, though, is that they haven't yet given up on the idea that they're going to do a whole load of capital spending. So they're, di- they're making an arcane distinction between the current spending, which they're saying, OK, well, maybe we can't do a small VAT cut, which, as we all know, is irrelevant in the context of an economy the size of Britain's anyway. But they're, they're still saying, nevertheless, when we come into power, growth will be much greater than the coalition and we'll do capital spending, which will have a multiplier effect. Therefore, and this is the bit where the intellectual surrender has not taken place, we will be able to spend more because we'll have more money available. They're essentially saying, it's like the Irishman, I'm not going to start from here. So to that extent, I think the addiction the Labour Party has is to the state as its primary way of changing things. And I don't think they've given up on that yet at all. So I think that's where the spending desire comes from, the desire to make the world better with a little scheme here and there. And so to that, to, when you put together those two things, their optimism about growth and their addiction to, to meddling through the state, I don't think they've surrendered yet in a way which I wish they would surrender, and I wish Danny was right, but I fear he isn't. Well, as, I, as I never worked for uh, uh, Gordon Brown's Labour Party, I can't, um, I suppose that probably means I could retain a degree of optimism. Uh, and um, <coughs> I... I beaten out of you because <laughs> it, it is clouding your judgment. You need to be much more pessimistic and much more politically t- cynical. The, the consequences of not fighting the Conservative Party on total expenditure are very serious for Labour. And where I'm not optimistic about their position definitely is this. I think they have taken the decision that they can't fight the Conservative Party on total spending, but they have no clue what that really means. And the consequences for any party, and this includes the Conservative Party, of sticking to the spending plans of, of George Osborne are massive in terms of what the state is able to do. We are going to, after the next general election, have a spending round that will dwarf the others because it will have to be on top of all the changes that have already been made. And I don't think Labour has any sort of feeling that they, that, or understanding of really what it is they've agreed to. But, but, but also th- the totems that they came up with, the sort of T- cuts which were waived, you know, the pension, winter fuel allowance, free schools, getting rid of a few admirals. These were these were things that played into, in general, the Labour Party's, you know, tickled the Labour Party. It didn't challenge the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. And I think they're going to have to come up with some things that challenge Labour. And they're going to have to decide soon, aren't they, Rachel? Because we're less than two years away now from the general election. At some point, the Tories are going to hit Labour with the 1992 tax bombshell campaign, unless they are clear what their spending envelope is that they're going to accept. They're going to be hit very hard with this. Yeah, there's a huge public opinion thing to change around. And they've got to, and it takes a while to turn around that super tanker. And I think that's why, you know, David Miliband said he'd have made a speech rather like Ed Bulls's speech right at the beginning of taking over, admitting where Labour, or actually he'd have gone further, admitting what Labour had done wrong. Then that's your starting point. But that you need to sort of time to change the voters' minds about you. Just a question to you, Phil. Just just for a moment, if you can bear it, assume that Danny Finkelstein is right and that Labour have indeed um, accepted uh, this uh, spending set, uh, envelope. And you touched on this in your column uh, recently. If there is no more money that Labour can spend, what is Labour's offering? Now, you sort of implied that it was a return to a more traditional Labour of decentralised power and mutualism. Is that enough for Labour? I don't think they'll do that. That would be my recommendation to them. But I don't think, I'm not optimistic that that's what will actually happen. 
I think what they'll do is repeat the mistake that got them into the mess in the first place, which is to be too optimistic about growth. So, yes, they will accept the spending envelope, as you put it, but it's not the same one in their heads because growth is better under Labour in their heads. Therefore, there's more money available. Therefore, it's not the same surrender. And that's precisely the error they made when they were in the Treasury. They had optimistic growth forecasts and therefore their tax revenues for the future were, were going to just keep on coming. And they're doing the same thing again, which is why they don't think they've surrendered. So I think they will be, they will get to power and realize that's not true. And there will then be a reckoning if they get to power, I should we say. see something like Francois Hollande, who I did not prepare the French people for the austerity that he's yes. having to impose. So I think the thing to watch is in their, the people who are in their major spending departments, like Stephen Twigg yesterday talking about education, is he coming forward with a program which is a program for a more efficient state, or is he not? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. I think he failed that test yesterday. I, I think mean, that's crucial. You know, Rachel mentioned the question of free schools. I mean, the, the, the idea of even abolishing free schools didn't last through yesterday. Uh, and that's a, that's a saving that's pretty nugatory. So it, it doesn't seem to me that they're prepared at all for, um, for the changes they'll have to make. And they will undoubtedly have to fall on tax rises. And evidence suggests that you can't really tax more than 38% of GDP on an ongoing basis in an economy, and we're at our tax limit as a as a nation. I think they'll find it um, very difficult to gain either assent or long-term proper revenue out of trying to tax more. Well, one, one other point, though, is that this we... In 2017, we'll be spending the same amount as a proportion of the of the GDP as we were in 2003. And it didn't feel like carnage in 2003. The big difference, two big differences. One is the debt itself. And if that comes down, there's more money available. And the second, which is where I think you might want to go in a minute, Tim, is on pensions, on old people. We're spending a lot more on old people. So the political decision about who's going to be courageous about the National Health Service and about pensions is absolutely critical for the next election. Well, you, you've, you've raised the issue of pensions, so let's uh, turn to that, because Matthew Paris wrote a piece for The Times when he said, you know, fight back, young people, granny's mugging you, and it was a huge response in the comments threads, huge response in the letters pages. I've got one letter um, from The Times uh, letters page in front of me, um, from John 
Cardner in Fife. And he writes, Matthew Paris forgets that an important group are over 80 and many of them were participants in a world war which saved the nation from invasion. They then loyally paid their taxes for more than 40 years. They deserve and are grateful for all that the state awards them. Many are not in the best of health and perhaps deserve more from the NHS. None should be called muggers. And Rachel, this is this is the territory you're yeah. getting into. We can have an argument about how many veterans of the Second World War are still alive, but taking away or looking like you're going to cut pensions is yeah. politically toxic for people. Well, this is where sort of politics clashes with reality, if you like, because I think for the for the country, for the finances and everything, any government after 2015 is going to have to look at this. And I know in number 10, there's a huge battle now to make sure that David Cameron doesn't repeat his promise to keep all those pensioners perks, you know, the winter fuel allowance, the television license, the bus pass, that at the last election, he promised during the TV debates that, that the Tories would keep. And now the strategists are saying we've just got to make sure he, do, he gets through the election campaign without saying that same pledge, because we can't, you know, realistically stick, keep those things. But Cameron also understands the politics of all this. So it was significant, I thought, that Ed Balls did float this idea of getting rid of the winter fuel allowance. As That was a sort of pretty tiny damn payment, though. But, yeah, but it did at least put um, it, that put it on the agenda. And certainly the Liberal Democrats have been pushing for that to be part of the current coalition spending review. Um, and I think it is, you, you do have to look at what's fair. And if in, if you've got limited resources, you've got to target those resources on the people who need them most. You know, I've lost child benefit. And actually, I think that's right. I, as a top rate taxpayer, I don't think my family should get that extra support from the state. But equally, I don't think that pensioners should get universal benefits just because they're old. Mm. Isn't the danger, though, for David Cameron, if he does what you advise, and there's very good reasons that he should, as, as Phil has um, pointed to, 50% of state expenditure is already on the National mm. Health Service and pensions. That's going to rise. If you add in debt interest mm. payments, it means every other part of the state is going to be squeezed very, very tough. Well, but it's going to have to be harder things, you know, maybe raising the state pension age. You know, we're all going to carry on working longer anyway. It's, it's that sort of thing as well. well I, want it's to, not... I, I want to come on to, to, to raising this, the state pension age, but just sticking with the politics mm. for, for a moment. Just assume that the Liberal Democrats, Labour and Conservatives all say we will cut pension spending in some way. The problem is there's a new kid on the block now, yeah. which is UKIP. Yeah. The grey vote is incredibly important for the Conservatives. This could be absolute gold dust yeah. for Nigel but, Farage yeah. to go onto the doorsteps and say, and we're the only party that bound to say that, your, isn't yeah. he? The, the, the people who fought the, the, the Second World War are nearer 90 than 80. So the argument that that's made there is is false. And it's plainly the case that the people have paid in, they haven't paid in enough uh, to pay out all the uh, benefits. But the politics of this are horrendous. And they're all to do also with loss aversion and expectations. I think there isn't any way out of the politics of it and that all that you can do is to decide what we will not pay people in future. This is the reason why one of the ways of cutting uh, benefits was to change uh, pension benefits was to change them from uh, from growth to uh, to prices uh, and therefore over time the pension went down but then eventually that became a huge political issue. I, I think that you've, you're going to have to look at future spending on pensions but the politics of trying to take away money from existing pensioners are just awful because people feel they were people feel their contributory benefits they worked hard and they're getting them back. 
is the, the, the key thing, Phil, isn't it, is the retirement age as much as anything, isn't it? We, at the moment, I think someone born today, if only they, re, they work from 21 to sort of their late 60s, mean that they could spend more than half of their life not working. And a state cannot afford that. Do we not need to link the retirement age to life expectancy? Isn't that the real way we start to make savings in the pensions bill? Yes, well, we'll have to. And, and that's gradually starting to happen. The Turner Commission pushed the retirement age up a little bit and it will have to we'll have to go back to that and do it again. I would just abolish the retirement age. I don't see where we have one at all. So let people just work. But we'll have to do something bold on that because we simply can't afford it. People have to either pay in more whilst they're working or work a lot longer, or very probably both of those things. And also what's interesting is I think people might want to, in a way. And so we did, Alice Thompson and I did an interview recently with Lord Young, who's the Prime Minister's advisor on Enterprise. And he's 80-something. He's just had a sort of triple heart bypass operation. But yet he goes into number 10 every day, and he's, you know, on his iPad, reading the Times every morning over his... Quite right too, yeah. (laughs) But, and and he says, actually, I don't want to give up work. I love it, and 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 I want to carry on. And actually, he thinks well, other of people would he want does, to, though, yeah. because he's got yeah. he works in number ten Downing Street. But but obviously, there's somebody who has to be the janitor at university uh, in the university block toilets or something. He doesn't want to work. Entitlement to retire <laughs> at a certain age, let's say sixty-seven, but no obligation to retire. That way, if you want to carry on working, yeah. you're permitted. There's a question of when state benefits come, obviously. Uh, f- finally and briefly, just to um, you, Rachel, we are nearing the end of this latest phase of the coalition's effort to deal with the immediate spending control challenge. And you've written that as much as actually this sort of national union of ministers resisting some of the necessary economies, that you've introduced this idea of the national union of mandarins as well. Tell us a bit more about what's going on there. Well, I think there's a huge resistance to change and efficiencies in some parts of Whitehall. Obviously, some of the senior civil servants are up for reform, but there's also some sort of backwoodsmen who are incredibly resistant to giving up their departmental power bases. So Francis Maud, who's become one of the sort of great modernizers of the coalition, is in the cabinet office trying to create a more efficient system with with centralized purchasing of recycled paper, etc, etc. And then out in the departments, the mandarins are refusing to cooperate. So uh, he's, he's set up a sort of money saving paper buying scheme. The Ministry of Defense, for example, refused to sign up because they said, oh, it was a paper stationery was a strategically important matter. So they couldn't possibly sign up to this this scheme that would have saved millions of pounds a year. And the, that's going on all over assume, Whitehall. And I assume on bigger ticket items than well, paper on far as bigger well, tickets. like IT. No, absolutely. Mm. IT is an absolutely huge issue. Stephen Kelly, who's the government's new chief operating officer, brought in from the private sector by... Francis Maud recently said at a sort of, at a, a seminar, Whitehall seminar, that it took him seven minutes every morning to turn on his computer. Um, the officials went mad, said this is completely untrue. It's outrageous. You're slurring our IT systems. So he posted on YouTube a, a picture, a video of himself turning on his computer. And it was indeed seven minutes, <laughs> 20 seconds. And he said, I'll fight for every penny of taxpayers' money to make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen. And it's, you know, there's this absurd amount of waste going on, sort of bad technology, 
um, historic contracts by um, what Francis Maud called a sort of oligopoly of big IT providers who are effectively ripping the government off. And they're protected by some of the mandarins who are embarrassed to admit they've signed up to these bad contracts. And also sometimes actually slightly frightened and wary of the modern world. So we have a Tory prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, having to fight an NUM in the 1980s. And we have different NUM today. Oh, thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Danny. We'll have to leave it there, I'm afraid. That's about all the time we have for this first ever edition of Did You Read? Times subscribers can read the articles we've discussed today on the Comment Central blog, which you can find at thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral. I'll be back next week with another gathering of the best writers and a selection of the best writing in British journalism. Until then, thank you very much for listening and do subscribe via iTunes to Did You Read? Cheerio. Also from The Times... What comedian with a penchant for cheese, puns and obscure facts is set to host a panel show dedicated to the Ashes, the greatest sporting contest in the history of the universe? Is it A, the ghost of W.G. Grace, B, Mexican hottie and leg spinner Selma Hayek, or C, Andy Zaltzman? If you know the answer, then join me, Andy Zaltzman, for The Greatest Test, the best comedy quiz panel live show about the Ashes in England this summer. Probably guaranteed. Tickets at thetimes.co.uk slash greatest test.